I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 10 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective of the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Tim. We're in double digits now. (laughs) Episode 10. Who thought it would last this long? Not me. <laughs> we got five years worth of shows to do, so. Yeah, I hope we'll be here in five years. Hopefully we will. Hopefully we will. Um, I know your Mets are doing well. Congratulations. Yeah, as we taped this today, they just lost, so I'm not uh, very happy with the outcome of today's game. But, yes, they have the best record in the National League and are currently five and a half games up on the uh Atlanta Braves. So yes, it is all good in baseball land. And how about your other podcast? The is it still called the Fanagers? Last night, Fanagers. Yeah, I actually taped a, a new episode yesterday with uh, Mr. Gibbons, uh, Mr. John Gibbons, and uh, Stu Stone from Toronto, Canada. So that went well. We uh, talked about the Mets manager Buck Walter. We talked about. Uh, how you keep your team motivated if another team ahead of them is just running away with it like the Yankees are right now, and the Blue Jays are in second place. So it was a very robust and lively discussion with uh, a guy that is a total straight shooter, John Gibbons. It was a lot of fun, and uh, we continue to do that, and we hope the show is going to be picked up by a big distributor sometime in the near future, but we'll have to wait and see. A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of podcasts just produce themselves until somebody wants to come along. We're on different networks, but to be like, they'll pay you to be exclusive. They'll pay you just to be on their podcast first, to be on their network first. It takes time. You know, it takes time. Unless unless you're walking in with a big name, it takes time with all these podcasts. Yeah. With John, it's, he's a big name. Obviously he's an icon in Canada. And, uh, and John was uh, in the beginning stages of the podcast, not really wanting to keep his name up front because he's a, uh, Special assignment scout for the Atlanta Braves still. And now that the scouting season is over, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen with his agreement with the Braves, whether he's going to be retained for another season. But he's like, uh, let's start um, 
you know, positioning it and put my name in the title, which I always wanted to do. Nice. And now he's uh, moving along with that. So maybe we will get that uh, that pick up by uh, Spotify Canada or uh, another one of the platforms out there like Odyssey, iHeart. There's so many. So I think he has a name recognition. We'll have to see where it goes. Absolutely. And if you if you're not picked up by one of these things, there's other ways to make sure your podcast goes on. Our way is through Patreon. And John and I want to thank everyone from the Patreon for their positive response on the Mary Freeze, or I mean Mary Furpo interview we had up. Uh, Mary is the daughter of Pamparo Furpo. And last last month he was headlighting the garden, and we had Mary on, and she she gave us some great stuff for the Patreon, uh, photos of her dad at home, different programs and things, and the, the knowledge that she brought out about so many things behind the scenes, and plus she brought out Shimu, which I was really excited about. So if you want to see any of this, it's all up on the Patreon right now, and you you always add stuff to the Patreon every week, right, John? Every Sunday we're putting stuff up, and uh, we have revamped our tiers now giving people more bang for the buck and uh so you know right now you could join patreon.com slash john arezzi five bucks gets you in five bucks gives you this podcast it gives you the pro wrestling spotlight podcast you get these podcasts early before everybody else does you also get them commercial free and uh, you get the entire archives of not only this show memories from madison square garden but you also get the archives of the pro wrestling spotlight uh, so right now we have 1989 uploaded, uh, 1990, 1989, <laughs> going back 30 <laughs> fucking years, uh, 1990, 1991, and we're in the middle of 1992 right now, and uh, we just finished the July 11th, 1992 episode, uh, which uh, highlighted the death, the unfortunate death of Buddy Rogers, and we brought on Bobby Davis, which was his manager, and Bobby just passed away last year, so it's a really interesting show, and but anyway, for five bucks, that's what that gets you. If you want to spend ten dollars a month, you'll be a pro wrestling spotlight super fan, and uh, not only do you get everything that I just spoke about, but you also get uh, interviews, classic interviews that uh, were never released before that I did from the seventies, uh, also into the nineties. You get uh, the first pro wrestling spotlight show from my college days, uh, nineteen seventy five, seventy six. You also uh, get access now uh, with the $10 level to all the video content that I put up there from IWAS, International Tours, to classic vintage wrestling clips, the Weekend of Champions uh, uh, panels with the celebrity wrestlers. So for $10 a month, you have access to all of that. And if you want to even get higher as an associate producer, uh, you get everything that I spoke about, including... All of the photo sets that I put up uh, almost every week now, you get these classic vintage photos that I shot at Madison Square Garden in the 1970s. They're all unwatermarked. And for that $25 a month patron, uh, patron you also now get the 8mm films. So uh, uh, there's a lot up there. Uh, and, of course, we do Zoom calls once a month with our patrons, so you get access to all of that in whatever level you're on. But if you want to be a producer of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight uh, Patreon page, it's $50 a month. You will get everything I spoke about, but you will also get four vintage wrestling magazines mailed to you each and every month from the 60s to the 90s, and you get to appear on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast as a guest analyst four times a year. Oh, wow. Pretty good. Yeah. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. 
And then if you want to be the executive producer, which now we have three of them, which is kind of cool. It's 100 bucks a month. And the executive producers get everything we spoke about. But instead of four magazines a month, you're going to get six of them. And you're going to be able to appear on the podcast six times a year. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. We should actually uh, make a little bit of a, um, uh, uh, you know, maybe we should put something in for the patrons and, and add a little something here. Yeah. Maybe if, maybe if you're a producer at 50 bucks a month, you get on the show once a year. Because yeah. we only do 10 of them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you're an executive producer, maybe you come on the show twice a year. Maybe I, we'll I, put that in, Tim. I, I think that'd be great. And, uh, you know, we were you just talking about Buddy Rogers and, and things we can find on the Patreon. Buddy was at your second convention, correct? Weekend of the Champions y- 2. Yes. Yes. And uh, he has um, – there's a lot of content with Buddy up on the Patreon site. And, uh, matter of fact, what I uploaded for everybody uh, – Pro Wrestling Spotlight newsletter back in 1992, and uh, the cover story was the death of Buddy Rogers, and I uploaded that entire newsletter uh, for patrons to take a look at, and um, it just talks about uh, Buddy, and we cover that uh, untimely death uh, pretty extensively in the newsletter and, of course, on the podcast. It's so much stuff on the Patreon that you can, you know, it's the summer now. You have you have time in the summer. The summer's here. Maybe you're going on a road trip. Maybe you're going to some place, hanging out with family. You're like, hey, I'll be back. I'm going to relax in my room for a little while. And you jump on the Patreon and you can watch some great videos, read some great stuff, or even listen to some great podcasts. Oh, it's so much. There's so, so many posts up there now. It's hard for me to keep track. I mean, you could literally spend weeks on the Patreon and still not have seen and heard everything. And we're, we're adding stuff all the time, so you want to check it out. Join the community, hear the history, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Now, today's show, July 1st, 1972, uh, I want to go back because this is Pedro's 15th title run at the Garden. He's headlining the Garden for 15 times. Now, how, let's let's try to explain this to people who don't understand uh, the Garden um, John, if if you're if you're headlining the Garden, which is like the um, flagship arena for the WWF and the WWF, and then later on the WWE a little, but like this is the place. I don't want to say it's it's like headlining a WrestleMania almost because when you're headlining this, it shows that the world that you have arrived. And he's this is his fifteenth time, so he's he's had this title for a little over a year and a half. Yeah, very, very true. I mean, uh, the Garden, they called it the Mecca for a reason. It was the Mecca of all arenas uh, around the world. And if you had a chance to headline a Madison Square Garden show, you certainly had had arrived. And uh, no matter no matter who, uh, if you got a chance to headline Madison Square Garden, it's a feather in your cap. And of course, Morales headlined 15 times. Yeah, and uh, I, I said year and a half, but a, a little over a year, a little over a year. But his reign is still going, and uh, I want to go over his reign. Um, let's start. Let's go back a little way. I, I found this great. This is a great little tidbit that Richie gave us on May seventeenth, nineteen sixty-three, the night that Bruno Sammartino beat Buddy Rogers for the WWF title. A young Pedro Morales was the second match in the card back then, with a win over Willie Bath. We all remember Willie Bath, great wrestler. Rod John. He was very. He's very clean. Very clean. Very clean. The Willie Bath. Uh, Nine minutes, 58 seconds. He was so embarrassed he never returned to the Garden again. But that just shows, like, back in the day, you can start on the cart and work your way up from 1963 till he got the title later on in 1971. It's it's an amazing it's an amazing thing um, listening to him. But uh, wait, let's go over let's go over real quick. Uh, Pedro's title run. Uh, what was it for? Yeah. When did he win the title there, John? 
Well, February 8th, 1971, a month after, uh, only three weeks after Bruno had lost the title to Ivan Koloff, Pedro got the main event. He got the opportunity to wrestle for the title, and he beat Ivan Koloff for the WWF title. Koloff held that title for just 21 days, and Morales comes in, headlines the Garden, boom, catches the championship. And uh, the most uh, memorable, special thing about that night was that Bruno came into the ring to present him the title belt and kind of changing in the card, so to speak. Bruno was that guy. You know, he was the guy, he, he whatever's good for business. And we always talk about that today, good for business. What's good for business? Bruno was good for business. Bruno was good for wrestling. He knew when to, you know, step down. He knew when to step up. He didn't have to step up and support Pedro like he did. But he did, and that made a big difference in his reign. Yeah, it kind of vilified uh, the Morales uh, title run. Uh, he came in, and Bruno was just so tired after holding the title since '63, and he needed a break. and And then they gave the uh, gave it to Koloff, who was transitional, and then Morales got it. But Bruno going in there to say, "This is the guy, everybody. So he's the champion. Let's give him your support." Uh, Bruno lifts his hand up, uh, and it was a special, special. Uh, special night there's there's movie footage of it out there if you go on youtube and you could see that match and and see bruno going into the ring after uh, uh morales pins koloff uh and that's it man and and then he's off to the races amazing amazing bruno and pedro now uh pedro's next title defense was march 15th 1971 against blackjack mulligan a question about like a blackjack mulligan back in the day he was always when he, i remember I, i've ever seen him he was always a huge guy what kind of wrestler was blackjack mulligan back in the 70s was he more agile when i used to see him it was more like the 80s blackjack mulligan and like that was like the 80s andre it was a slower wrestler what was he like in in like in the early 70s he was a good big man, as they would say. Very tall, uh, very solid. Uh, used the iron claw uh, in his matches. He was always a, always a consummate heel. And, of course, he leaves a, a legacy with uh, his son, Barry Windham. And, and I believe, yeah, Bray, isn't Bray Wyatt? Is Bray Wyatt uh, Windham? I'm trying as to think. Well? I hear. I didn't know if he was a Wyndham or he. Or was, is he? Or is he a Rotunda? I think he was a Rotunda because his, his yeah. Barry Wyndham's sister, or it was uh, Blackjack Mulligan's daughter, married Mike Rotundo. There you go. That's. I'm sorry about that, everybody. You Something know, like that. I, I know. Fog, hey, man. look, we're we're going back. I could, going, I, could re- I could remember more things from 50 years ago than I can from three years ago. How's that sound? There you go. And Pedro kept his reign going May 24th by defeating Tarzan Tyler. Another good hand. Uh, not a superstar, superstar, but uh, it was a you know tough guy, and, and Morales beat him handily. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. 
June 21st, Pedro beat Crazy Luke Graham. Crazy Luke Graham, it, it, was he at the time like one of these wrestlers that could pop in and always like draw somewhat of a crowd, but someone you don't want to keep around for a long time? He was uh, one of those guys that came in and out of the territory, and I remember him with uh, against Bruno uh, years before. He always, um, you know, he was crazy in the ring. He had a taped up thumb, like you know, like some of them did at the time, and uh, he would go crazy because the fans would be chanting "Crazy Luke, Crazy Luke," and he would hope he would put his arm up to his and and cover his ears, and it was kind of an interesting gimmick. But Crazy Luke Graham. Of course, part of the uh, historic Graham family, even though they weren't related. And we will be talking to them about them later on in today's show. Yes, we will. Um, so anyway, on July 24th, Pedro teams up with Gorilla Monsoon, uh, who later would become his manager to defeat the team of Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham. So if you look at it, you know, three garden appearances in a row. It's Morales against Tyler Graham, and now both of them this time teaming up with uh, Monsoon. And let's go to August 30th, 1971. Pedro battles Stan Stasiak to a double DQ when both men were bleeding. And this, this was your first show at the Garden, right, John? Yes, it was. It was the very first time I got to see Pro Wrestling Live. And uh, ironically, it was the only time that uh, during the time that I was there that Morales did not win. He won every other time. This was the only time that he did not actually win a match. And for your first time going to the Garden, the first time seeing live wrestling, you saw a bloodbath. Oh, yeah. It was a bloodbath, and I remember it vividly. It was exciting, and the fans were going crazy. They were surging the ring. And, of course, that's another reason why Morales never lost again at Madison Square Garden, because they knew that there would be a riot on their hands. And as we talked about earlier, there was no ring you know, barricades. It was just a thin rope they used to use to stop people from coming forward. So anybody— they, it, would, it could have got out of hand really easy. Yes, very much so. Yeah, they were certainly fortunate that there was never a riot there during one of the Morales matches during his reign. And then October 25th, my second show ever. This time I did get to see Pedro win. He defeated Stan, the man Stasiak, at the Garden. And I remember this, uh, my second show, and I first time sitting at ringside, and the closer you get, the more you loved it. Absolutely. And then we go to November 15th. Pedro gets a DQ win over Freddie Blassie because they had to stop for blood. Now, we, we were just talking about earlier losing a match. I remember this match was a shortened match because of the rioting. Yeah, the fans were out of control on this one, and Blassie uh, got cut, and they stopped it pretty quickly, uh, Pedro, with the win over Blassie due to blood. And then, of course, you come back on December 6th when they have that gladiator death match is what they called it. Uh, Pedro Morales gets the win over Blassie in the rematch in the not-so-famous Roman Gladiator match. We're going to finally enter 1972, January 31st, 1972. Pedro gets a DQ win over Professor Toro Tanaka. Yep, uh, handily uh, gets the DQ there, and then they have to come back for a rematch in, uh, on February 21st. Pedro beats Tanaka, one, two, three in the middle. Then we go to March 13th. Pedro beats Baron Mikel Sakluna. There you go, with the roll of dimes in uh, Sakluna's uh, tights, of course. And then you come back on April the 17th at the Garden, where Pedro uh, goes off the top rope with a flying body press to beat King Curtis. And May 22nd, Pedro defeats Pampero Furpo to retain the belt. And we get into present day, but... Uh, 
Uh, interesting stuff over the over the past several months, and uh, of course we got several more months of Pedro's reign before uh, he eventually drops the title. You're taking a risk when you're leaving, like when you had a champion like Bruno there for so long. You're actually taking a risk grabbing anybody, and and Pedro was your man. You you're, you're putting a lot of faith in him, and it seemed like it turned out well. Yeah, I mean that was Vince McMahon Senior's uh, way of uh, putting the the strap on an ethnic champion. I mean he did it with Bruno. He did it before that with uh, Argentina Rocca. Uh, and Morales also fell into that uh, uh, that same ethnic champion. Uh, McMahon promoted to uh, the ethnic population in and around the New York area. That's how we did it. Oh, and I have a I have a little question here. It's from Joe DeRusso from Allentown, PA. Uh, Joe okay. wanted to go back for a couple of months. He said, I have a question about the Lou Albano photo from May 22nd, 1972. Question number one is, how long did John have to wait to actually see the photo, and did it turn out better than he thought it did? Uh, good question. Um, well, at that time, obviously, there was no digital cameras, so you have to get your film developed. And my uh, my photo processing center of choice was Photomat uh, off of Wellwood Avenue in Lindenhurst. It was like a little drive-through uh, kiosk, and uh, I started bringing my photos there to get developed. And there might have been other places to bring them. There are photo stores in the area, but I had a, um, had a liking to the girl who worked in the Photomat, Tara Murphy who I eventually took out on a wonderful date uh, all those years ago. But anyway, it took, it took a couple of weeks. You, you know, you bring the roll in, and then you get the pictures back. And when I saw it, I couldn't believe it, how good it was. I mean, it was uh, by far the best photo I had taken. I was new in photography, obviously. I hadn't been taking photos for many months. And uh, this one was this historic – it became a historic photo. It was much better, much better than I thought it was going to be. And, and you talk about Tara Murphy. Give me, give me, what is, what did Tara look like? Who, like, was there any celebrities in the day you can say Tara looked like this person? Uh, she looked a little like a very young Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd, very nice, very nice. Yes. She was my, uh, she was my boyhood crush. And then when I got, you know, when I started talking to Tara, Tara would start, you know, she would like, because I'd be there all the time. She'd be like, yeah, you bring a lot of pictures in. And I just would just hang out and talk to her. And, and when a car pulled up in back of me to be next in line, I'd, I'd circle around and go in back of that car. And then I'd just do, uh, I'd just stay there for hours on end, just, you know, talking to her. She drove a little blue Volkswagen Beetle. She was really kind of a hippie uh, girl. Of course, we're talking about, you know, I knew Tara literally I, uh, from 1972, 73, 74. Really? Yeah. She was there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's surprising. She looks like Sybil Shepherd. She should have moved on quicker. Yeah, I don't know. You know, once I, uh, once uh, it was over, it was over, and I never seen her again. Didn't you meet Sybil Shepherd at one time? <laughs> yes. I was working at a radio station in Boston. I was a producer for a show uh, called The Brad LaMax Show. It was a overnight weekend show. And uh, I'd bring on guests uh, like I'd I'd call Las Vegas and I'd find out who was working in the casinos. And then I'd ask to be connected to the dressing rooms. So we we got, you know, everybody from Rodney Dangerfield to Tony Bennett, Andy Williams, Cher. Uh, I just called. Can I you know, I need to get to Cher's dressing room. Boom. And they put me right through. So and then they put it right on the radio with Brad Lamax. So that was crazy. I found out that Sybil Shepherd, who was a big, big crush of mine, she was in. At Long Last Love, which was one of the movies, The Last Picture Show, which was a classic. Uh, and I, I just was in love with her. I mean, and then I found out she was putting an album out because she was a singer as well. 
and she uh, was booked at a club in New York City in late 1979 called Reno's Sweeney's. And I'm like, I'm going, and I'm going to interview her. So I went through the proper channel saying that I was a producer for this Boston show, the Brad Lamack show, and I wanted to get an interview with Sybil Shepard and went through the proper channels, and I got the interview. I thought it would be at the club, but it wasn't. Uh, they actually arranged it where I would interview Sybil in her hotel suite in New York City. At that time, and this is kind of a crazy story, at that time, Sybil uh, had married an auto parts dealer from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, his name was uh, David, David something or other, I forgot. Uh, anyway, but anyway, she had just had a baby, uh, a daughter that she named Clementine. And here I am in 1979, and I, um, I get there a little early. David Ford was the guy's name. So I knock on the hotel suite. I had my cassette player, and I was just, I was almost shaking in my boots anyway, and uh, lets me in. And as I'm walking, as I'm walking through into the, the suite, into the living room area, the suite, I see her breastfeeding her daughter, Clementine, in the bedroom. And that, threw me through a loop and that was you know my nerves were shot i still have that interview on tape and she was so sweet and that sultry sexy southern voice and then she invited me to her performance at reno sweeney's and i took my sister donna with me and uh, it was a small little club and uh, i swear there was a couple songs she was singing to me and and it got pictures with her and had her autograph the album that i had bought uh and uh, i still have it to this day but that was my Sybil Shepherd story. And um, she was like, you know, I, I, <laughs> there was uh, there was a um, a little stationery store. We used to buy my wrestling magazines in West Babylon and uh, Kodak. Sybil uh, Shepherd was a spokesperson for Kodak. And there was a stand up cardboard. Oh, yeah. 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 With her on a bicycle. Uh, and, uh, I saw that in the store one day and I just went bananas and I convinced, uh, the, the, the stationary stores, the place was called docks and I convinced doc and his wife that, you know, once they were done with the promotions, I could please have it. And that stayed in my room and it stayed in my college dorm room for, <laughs> for almost my entire stay there. So Sybil uh, gave me Sybil gave me lots of uh, pleasure. Let's put it that way. There you go. There you go. And if you if you're a fan of the Patreon, I'm sure John doesn't mind putting up that interview and maybe some pictures of Sybil. I think maybe that's why Tara broke up with me after just a couple of dates because maybe I was calling her Sybil. Maybe you called her by the wrong name. There you go. There you go. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I love that story. And we digress, right? And, and we digress. <laughs> We've been talking a long time of everything but professional wrestling. Let's get back into yeah. the garden, professional wrestling. Uh, John, let's talk about where did you get your tickets for the garden this time and where did you sit? This was uh, a show that I was in at ringside. I do remember uh, sitting at ringside for this particular show, and I got the tickets like I always did. This was before I started lining up, uh, you know, to get my really good seats later on down the road. Uh, but I got them at uh, Ticketron. Ticketron, the only place to get tickets on Long Island. Ticketron. This is a big night, in, uh, and, and they were in the A and S. Oh yes, store in West Babylon. You had to, you had to wait till they opened up. You ran in because of other people wanting tickets too. You all ran through the through the ladies' department and the men's department, and you finally got it there. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Uh, this is a big night at the Garden. Women are wrestling at the Garden for the first time. And uh, John, I want to ask you about that about the TV buildup. Did they build up to the women wrestling at the Garden? Uh, they did. Uh, they were talking about it uh, as it was a special event. It was the first time women's wrestling had been presented 
in New York. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was forever, but it was certainly for decades. Let's put it that way. And uh, they had to go in front of the commission and they had, you know, the girls were, you know, there was a lot of politicking going on to get women's wrestling approved. But once it was approved, once they announced it, it was big. It was almost bigger than the main event. Really? Yes, because it had never been seen before. You sent me over something that we're going to be putting up on the Patreon. You have found the program for Saturday night, July 1st, 1972. Mm -hmm. And uh, going down on this, it, the cover is the spoiler without a mask on. You will be able to see all this on our Patreon. But it gets down to the ladies, and they don't call them ladies. They call them girl wrestlers. And it just they're all in bikinis except for the fabulous Moolah who has the belt around her waist. Yeah, and the program, it's like on the – because it's only a, uh, you know, it's only like a four-page program. It's all printed on one sheet: the front cover, the inside cover, the matches, and then on the back cover. Uh, but they did have a, uh, uh, a highlight on the second page of the program, which just said, "Coming to Madison Square Garden, girl wrestlers." I don't know where they they have another thing that says the staff stars. I don't know what that is. It's on the right side of yeah. it. And so in this um in this little uh, section on the garden program, uh they had Sandy Parker, uh Donna Christiantello, Mula was in the middle with the belt, Vicky Williams, and then there was something called the staff stars, but that that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. As a typo, it was handwritten by uh, whoever did the program and laid it out. But uh, one thing uh, about this is, like, this was the show that I discovered that you could go outside before the show, a couple of hours before the show. You could stand by the entrance where the wrestlers came in. Uh -huh. And once I found out about that, that's where I was planted. And this day, this night... On July 1st, 1972, I took pictures of wrestlers coming into the arena, and Mula was one of them. Vicky Williams I got walking into the arena. Terry Funk I got walking into the arena. Don Jardine, who was the spoiler, I got walking into the arena. And Captain Lou Albano. I remember that pretty vividly. Do, do Can we put those on the Patreon? Uh, if I could find them. Okay. All right. Well... <laughs> Look I have to. the Mula one for sure. I found that the other day. It was in a box. Let, let's put that up. Yeah. That's put, and it's, it's pretty amazing because you actually took pictures of history. Mula, first time yeah. at the garden ever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she was wearing this uh, black top, white skirt. She was beaming. She was wearing these sunglasses. She looked like she had just hit the lottery because she was walking into the garden to wrestle for the very first time. And it's amazing if you think about this, the Garden for the very first time in 1972 and the first WrestleMania at the Garden, Mula was in also. Yes, she was. Amazing? Not a very liked person, though. Let's put it that way. She controlled women's wrestling. There's a lot of controversy with Mula. There's a lot of bad things people have said about her. There's some good things. But for the most part, you weren't wrestling anywhere in the United States if you were a woman. Unless you were booked by Moolah. This is true. It, it wasn't the best business back in the day. It definitely wasn't the best business back in the day. Let's oh, go. yeah, like it's better today? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, of course. And, and we're going through a lot what's of going on right? What's, what's yeah, going on right now? You're right. You're right. You're right. And, and we, <laughs> we were going to say we're going to start talking about that today, but we don't know by the time this was released, everything's changing so quick. So whatever we say will be old. So let's let's get back into what let's we're here for. To, let's go back to the past. Let's go back to the past. Things we do know what happened. Madison Square Garden, July 1st, 1972. Attendance. 19,512. That's a pretty good crowd. Really good crowd for the Garden to sell out, uh, as he'd like to call it. Match number one, Mike Graham defeated Juan Caruso in five minutes, 19 seconds.
Yes, uh, Mike Graham, who was the son of Eddie Graham, uh, was at the Garden. His dad was also on the card, but uh, Mike was a young guy uh, breaking in, and he had a lot of talent. Uh, it was kind of exciting to see him because I'd only read about him in the wrestling magazines, and there he is at the Garden wrestling against Juan Caruso, uh, who used to carry this bolo in the ring and swing it around his head. But he was an enhancement guy. Graham wins, and that's uh, that's the deal for that one. Now, now Graham and, and some of his relatives are here on this night. Is or were they yeah. promoted on TV? I don't believe that the Grahams were promoted in any of the promos before the show. Okay. No, but you knew who they were. You've seen them before. Absolutely. I mean, when you've been reading the wrestling magazines for years, you know who everybody is. That's why it was a nice surprise to see uh, not just Mike, but also Eddie on the show. Match number two, Fred Curry defeated Joe Nova in six minutes, 43 seconds. Yes, uh, Fred Curry, the son of the famous Wild Bull Curry, the guy with the bushiest eyebrows in the history of pro wrestling, and, and a real scary type like the Sheik, just a wild man. But Fred Curry was smaller. He was a flyer. He had wonderful drop kicks, and that was his finisher. His finisher was the flying drop kick. And I remember taking photos of Fred Curry that night, and it was uh, kind of cool to see to see flying Fred Curry. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, Graham in the opening match, son of Eddie Graham, Fred Curry in the second match, son of Wild Bull Curry. That was kind of a neat little uh, little antidote. Oh, that is very cool. That is very cool. It's family night at the Garden. Family night at the Garden, definitely. Yes, it is, because we had other families that were there, too, which we'll get into. Exactly, exactly. Match number three, Gorilla Monsoon defeated the Black Demon at 4 minutes, 17 seconds. Yes, Monsoon, uh, certainly beloved by the fans, and he was probably number two babyface in the territory when Bruno wasn't there at this point. It was always Morales. It was Monsoon, Strongbow. Those were kind of the three top guys at the time, babyface-wise. And Monsoon got a huge reaction, defeating the Black Demon very handily at the Garden. It's just amazing to me. We're not even 21 minutes into the matches at the Garden, and here is the title match. It seems very early in the card to put a title match, don't you think? Very early in the show, and uh, the main event would go on uh, sometimes towards the second half of the show, mostly. Sometimes uh, the main event would go on and there'd be one or two matches to follow. Uh, but for this match to be brought on so early, you got to figure that someone had a flight to catch or there was something going on. You know, George Steele, I mean, even though it was the summer, uh, he was at that time a uh, a school teacher, a gym teacher, a professor and Morales. Maybe he had a shot that he had to go to in another part of the Northeast. Who knows uh, what happened? But uh, it was a very early early main event at the goal. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. WWF champion Pedro Morales pins George the Animal Steel in 14 minutes, 59 seconds. Yeah, and we have some anecdotal information about George the Animal Steel for everybody out there that follows history. I mean, he was AKA Mr. Jim Myers, started wrestling in 1960 under the hood as the student in the Chic Detroit territory, and he headlined his first MSG show May 20th, 1968, versus Bruno San Martino. The attendance at that time was only 10,506. Uh, 9,000 seats empty there. But the animal was always uh, someone that, that, you know, you know he would come in for the summers for the most part and then head out. Uh, the return match with Bruno, uh, June 22nd. Of course, that's around the time school was just about to let out. So I'm sure that his run was going to be over. At that time, Drew, uh, 10,580. Bruno pins steel in 24 minutes, 24 seconds. And then he comes back to get into the main event against Pedro Morales. And George Steele really became a company guy. Now, if you think of he started his career in the 60s, and then he had that run yeah. with Savage. Was that like the late, that was the mid-80s, right? Yeah, that was 88, 88. 86, 86, around there, right after WrestleMania. And then he turned babyface for a while and saved Miss Elizabeth and then be, started carrying the stuffed animal. They had painted his tongue green earlier than that. They turned a real scary heel, someone that you would actually be afraid of unpredictable he'd be biting turnbuckles he'd be chasing fans around the ring and they turn him into a cartoon character amazing uh, later on in the 80s which was which was for me uh it was just so so stupid and i remember he had like the arm bar was that his thing behind the back yes he did it was almost like a chicken wing in a way where he'd lift the guy up holding him like a chicken wing and that would be a submission hold I remember him doing it to Savage, but I was just looking at the career. That's a that's a pretty long career, and then he went behind the scenes yeah. at the WWF later on. Road agent for many years with the WWF. Let's go on to match number five, tag team championship match. The champions, Chief J. Strongbow and Sonny King, defeated Ernie the Cat Lad and Professor Toro Tanaka. Best out of two out of three falls. Strongbow and King won the first one. And then Ladd and Tanaka won the second one. And the third one was won by Strongbow and King. That last uh, fall was a DQ. It was a total of 31 minutes uh, for that match. And it was uh, one of the only, if not the only, title defense that Strongbow and Sonny King uh, had at the Garden after they won the title um, just a, a month or so previously to that. And then uh, they lose the title pretty pretty quickly uh, when uh, Tanaka and Fuji team up and, and and beat them for the titles. We were talking about Pedro's run, how great it was, but now talk about Sonny King and Chief J Strongbow. They won at the Garden last time. They had their first defense yeah. at the Garden, and they're not going to have the titles much longer. Yeah, no, I mean, there was some kind of uh, uh, money dispute, I believe, with Sonny King and, and Vince McMahon. Uh, there was not a good relationship there for whatever the reason was, and uh, the straps were taking off of them pretty quickly. Interesting, interesting. Let's go to match number six women's wrestling or girls wrestling as they say women's champion the fabulous moolah defeated vicky williams first women's match in the history of garden six minutes 39 seconds before i get into the match there's a lot of politics going on vince mcmahon was lobbying to get the girls at the garden but uh ironically it was penny banner and betty nikolai were the first two female wrestlers that went before the New York State Athletic Commission, and they weren't Moolah girls. They weren't booked by Moolah. So uh, they did go to talk to the commission, 
Vince McMahon Sr. didn't want any rough-looking girls going before the commission. So maybe uh, who knows what was going on back in the day and, and what leverages was going on and what politics were going on. Because Moolah claims that she went to the commission herself, I believe, with Vicki Williams. Uh, you know, I don't have the entire story, but all I know is, like, because Banner and Nikolai were there, they were not even Moolah's girls. Who knows what was going on behind the scenes at that point. But the end result was women's wrestling was approved and at Madison Square Garden. And ironically, getting back to Penny Banner, she never got a chance to wrestle at the Garden. Uh, Moolah uh, began working for Vince McMahon Sr. during the 1950s, but she was never able to, up until this day, uh, to appear at Madison Square Garden. Um, and she uh, passed away in 2007, 84 years old. I got to know Moolah very well, very well. She did appearances for me she was at my second convention but let's get to the match i mean what i remember about the match tim i remember as soon as the curtain opened up and uh, vicky williams came into the ring uh blonde hair you know spunky wrestled barefooted climbed into the ring and 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 all you could hear were kind of whistles and cat calls and, you know, all the, all the males in the audience were just kind of treating it like they were about to see a burlesque show. Then Moolah comes in, strutting in like she always did. She had that Moolah strut about her, and she had that gorgeous championship belt around her waist, and she was no nonsense. As soon as that bell rang, as soon as the introductions were made, even though there were a lot of whistles and Vicky Williams was a prettier of the two, whatever, but Moolah was and always worked stiff, and she beat the crap out of Vicky Williams, handily uh, won the match. There was a little offense on Vicky Williams, but it was in the books. Moolah winning the first women's match in New York City at Madison Square Garden, and there was going to be more women to come. Uh, but uh, it was a special night, and that was the draw. I mean, even though it wasn't a complete sellout there, of course, the draw and what was pushed hard under the Morales steel match was the special attraction girls match as it was positioned in the program between the fabulous Moolah from Columbia, South Carolina, who weighed in at 140 pounds against Vicki Williams, who they posted from Savannah, Georgia, weighing in at 145 pounds. And Moolah was definitely heavier than her. So, <laughs> so I don't know what went on there either. Uh, Williams was probably 120, 125 pounds, maybe. Moolah looked more like 150, 160. Uh, but uh, in the program, they said Moolah was 140 and Vicky was 145. So Moolah was an interesting character yes. outside the ring, for sure. Very, and she had that southern accent. Oh, very sweet. Very sweet I never forget. The, I never forget the first time I met her. It was in 1974. I was at the Wrestling Fans International Association convention the first time I'd gotten there. That was the convention where I won the fan club of the year for Freddie Blassie and the best monthly fan bulletin as awarded by the WFIA. Moolah was there and she got wrestler, a women's wrestler of the year. And I, I remember going into an elevator and there was Moolah. And she was like, congratulations. That's very nice. Uh, Freddie Blassie's a good man. And, and it was just kind of like, I didn't know what to say, you know, because Moolah was in the elevator with me. And it was the first time I had seen her and met her. And uh, so uh, that was kind of a special memory for me. Oh, that's cool. I, I wanted to go back real quick with you to the commission. If people don't understand yeah. what the commission was, what were they doing? Okay. And why did they have any ruling at all over professional wrestling? 
Well, they were the uh, main uh, jurisdiction for boxing and wrestling in New York City, and there's still a commission to this day, except for they don't do anything with wrestling. But they were in charge. They had judges at ringside. You know, their timekeeper was a New York State Athletic Commission timekeeper. The referees were all licensed by the New York State Athletic Commission. They oversaw the show. They would be dictatorial. Uh, of course, they got taxes. They got, you know, commission from every ticket that was sold. Uh, and, of course, the wrestlers had to pay for their New York State licenses, which was another stream of revenue for them. But they treated wrestling, uh, even though wrestling was a work and boxing was a shoot, uh, they treated wrestling the same as they did boxing. They were very strict. That's why managers were not allowed at ringside because uh, the athletic commission didn't uh, permit that. That's why for many, many years, masked wrestlers weren't allowed. That's why children under 14 were not allowed at, at a show uh, until you know much later on. They didn't like blood, especially if guys were battling outside the ring. There were many times when uh, some of the judges or some of the members of the athletic commission would get up and try to tell the guys to get back in the ring, which, you know, they never listened to. <laughs> but they were strict. They were strict. And they got their money. And they were always a thorn in the side of uh, the wrestling promoters. Were there any other commissions outside of New York, outside of, like, were there any in the South? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was commissions, I believe, in Florida. There are certain commissions in Vegas. There's commissions in California. Uh, I don't know about Boston. Uh, I'm trying to. And there were certainly commissions in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, the doctor at ringside, Dr. George Saharian, you know, your timekeeper, you know, ring announcer, Joe McHugh or Buddy Wagner. And they always had a timekeeper, judges and a doctor stationed at ringside. I was wondering about the South, like the NWA territories. If they Less had to the go to the same thing. Less in the South. Yeah. yeah. Less in the South. I mean, I'm not that familiar with every single state. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, I could tell you that uh, it was more in, in the metropolitan cities, that the, especially where there was a lot more high-profile matches. NWA, of course, ran in the South. And there wasn't a lot of commission restrictions or commissions in the Southeast, as far as I know. And this is why it's so important, because when Vince McMahon started making more money, he didn't want to give his, this money to the commission anymore. That's why he blew it up and said, we were faking. It was all kayfabe. So this is a huge deal. If they would just, I don't know, took less money or whatever, we maybe could be still going on with wrestling being kayfabe. Well, no, McMahon didn't want anybody. Once Vince took over and bought the company from his dad, Vince didn't want anybody telling him what to do. And even though they were getting their commission or their state tax is what they called it, uh, Vince didn't want to be overseen by anyone. He just didn't. And uh, that's why he came out in public and said, this is scripted sports entertainment. It's not an actual competition. And so therefore, we don't really need an athletic commission because we're kind of like a Broadway show. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And that caused all kinds of explosions with wrestling fans uh, the smart ones and the not so smart ones because it also the people who did believe that it was real and there was an element of that once mcmahon came out and said it wasn't uh, even the other promoters that were operating around the country were not really happy about that 
you know, going back, even just looking at things in the past, I always looked at the Southern wrestling as realer. Um, and, yeah. and like my, my dad, you, my dad used to watch wrestling with me and we mm-hmm. used to do, th- we used to fall in the same category with, this is fake. This is fake. Well, that match was real. This is fake. Oh, yeah. that match. So we'd always believe something in there. You know, there it's not all fake. No, no, this one's real. This one's real. right. You yeah. Wa- I used to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, uh, it was a, it, yeah, because it was a rougher style or when I'd see Freddie Blassie in the, in, when I was younger or the Sheik. That's real. You know, some of it's fake, but that one is real. That one's real. You try to justify it and have that suspension and disbelief. But down south, it was rougher and, um, you know, they work stiffer. It just it it blended more for me even as a, as a kid watching the southern stuff than than the northern stuff. Uh, last match of the night. This is pretty interesting. Match number seven. Terry and Dory Funk Senior uh, had mm-hmm. a draw with Don Curtis and Eddie Graham. No falls. Thirty minute time limit. Curfew at eleven o'clock. Yeah. Well, the Funks, uh, Graham and Curtis, all had been to the Garden previously. I mean, the very first show I went to, the Funks were there and. Uh, they were coming in and out regularly at the time, which was really interesting. And then it kind of stopped. Uh, I think um, in 73, mid-73 was their last appearances for uh, forever, really. But they were there, the Funks. And I do remember, you know, I, I'd known all about the Funks and seeing them get out of a cab outside uh, Madison Square Garden and walk in and Terry with his little... Um, attache case and and his dad i mean this big texan dory funk senior i mean it was just wonderful to be able to get that close to them outside and and they had a different style they had a more brawling style uh, of wrestling and uh, don curtis and eddie graham you know no slouches at all you know believable heels Graham especially. Don Curtis was just a rough guy who had been around for a long time so uh even though there was no definitive winner in that match. It was a very exciting uh, to see that 30 minute contest where these guys were working hard and, uh, and, and it was a brawl. It wasn't like uh, some of the other matches on the show. This was a brawl. This was a Southern style brawl. It's interesting that you can put a card together where you have your title matches earlier. You bring in a brand new kind of match, the women's match earlier, but you mm-hmm. end the show with a 30 minute match. That's a long time. So you got to keep the audience involved somehow. So they must have been a pretty good match. Yeah, it was a good match. But, uh, you know, the, the crowd started to filter out as they normally would at around 1045. 11 p.m. was the curfew and then people have to get home and then you have that train. If you're from Long Island, you know, that train leaves at 11.10. And if you don't, if you're not on that train at 11.10, you got to wait an hour before the next one comes uh, and gets you at Penn Station to go back uh, to the island. So a lot of people started filtering out, you know, around around 10.45 or so, 10.50 especially. Was that a big thing? Did they sh- did they go to curfew a lot or did they go before curfew? There was a, there was a lot of curfew. There was a lot of curfew matches. And I, I'll never forget, and we'll get into it in, as we cover 1973, when Mil Moscaris made his debut because they put him on last. And he was the guy I wanted to see more than anybody else on that show because it was his debut. And it was the first time a mass wrestler was allowed. And, and they put him on last and it's like, oh shit, you know, the train's going to leave in 10 minutes. So I started filming the match from close at ringside and, and I started walking up the aisle so I can get the hell out of there and catch my train. And the ending, the finish of that match is from way back uh, towards the exit because <laughs> I had to run out of there and get my train. And I was so pissed off because this was the guy I wanted to see. So, yeah, it's, uh, just another little story from uh, 
those memories from way back when. It, it seems like a pretty good card. John, how would you rate this card? You had uh, two title defenses. You had the Funks come in. You had the women. Well, I have to say it was a very memorable one for me. It was an exciting show. It was memorable for me because of the girls' match, uh, because I discovered the outside entrance where you could take pictures of the guys coming out of their cabs and walking into the arena. So it was very memorable to me. This this show, because I, uh, it just had a lot of things that I'll never forget. And uh, that, of course, was the, the girls' match. Uh, that was also seeing guys like Fred Curry. I mean, it was just kind of a, an overall very memorable show for me to remember 50 years later. Very good. Very good. Hey, uh, we want to just thank everybody before we go. Everyone who has signed up for our Patreon, we really do appreciate it. Like we talked earlier about going on networks, doing different things. How we pay for the show, how we keep the lights on is through our Patreon. And John adds stuff to Patreon every week. Every Sunday, every Sunday we put more stuff up. You can check it out at www.patreon.com slash John Arizzi. And you won't be sorry. No, you won't. Uh, a little side note, they put out the program that we're going to throw onto the Patreon. The spoilers on the cover, he did not compete, but he will be in next month's match. Uh, well, it's not next month. It's later on this month, July 29th. Remember, they didn't have a house show in June, so they did two in July. July 29th, Pedro Morales will take on the unmasked spoiler uh, at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, we look forward to covering that show as well. It should be a good one. And, of course, each and every every episode here, it's uh, kind of great to relive these memories with you, Tim. Absolutely. And everybody else out there listening. Absolutely. And once again, we want to thank uh, Scott Teal and Crowbar Press for their book, Wrestling at the Garden. Pick it up at crowbarpress.com. It's our Bible when it comes to researching this show, and it's Richie Garcia's Bible. When he does this as well, I uh, have to give a shout-out to Richie, of course. He... Uh, researches all of this. He writes it up. Uh, he gives us the notes and his passion for old school wrestling is unsurpassed. And uh, I want to thank Richie Garcia. And of course, I always want to thank you, Tim. Oh. And uh, some exciting things happening in your life. Yes. And very happy for everything that's going on with you. And, and of course, you have uh, your other podcasts that you do about the Olympics. And uh, and then, of course, in the wintertime, you uh, turn into uh, Jolly St. Nick. So tell everybody, why don't you tell everybody who's listening how they can find you on social media and what your other podcasts are so people can start following you. And then they can place their uh, Christmas list in early, especially <laughs> if they're good girls and boys. Well, there's, there's a couple different ways. We'll just go with my uh, Olympic podcast. It's called Tim Loves the Olympics. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you're looking for me on social media, it's TLTO Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Excellent. Thank you again, Tim. Well, thank you, John. For John Rizzi, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>